if you don't have a good understanding of the weed that you're targeting, you're not going to be able to keep it under those action thresholds. Mm -hmm. A whole new era of communication in the crop industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds in the crop industry right in your pocket. And what's best, you can listen to all of them while driving to the field, to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. KWS Hybrid Rye, seeding the future since 1856. Welcome to the Crop Science Podcast Show a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and all that's working in the global crop industry. Welcome to the Crop Science Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Arnell. Today, I'm honored to have Dr. Liberty Galvin with us. Liberty is actually new on campus here at Oklahoma State, where I'm, list, uh, where I'm uh, stationed at uh, in Oklahoma, Stillwater. Uh, Liberty is our relatively new assistant professor of extension weed science and precision weed management. Uh, we're really excited to get her down into Oklahoma, back home, as a matter of fact, or back into the state. Liberty, share with our listeners a little bit about your history, where you came from, your background, both, you know, just growing up, where you did school, and, and really why you've wound back up with that that orange logo back on your chest. <laughs> Thank you, Brian, for the invitation to the podcast. First of all, it is great to be back in the state of Oklahoma. Uh, both sides of my family actually um, are from Oklahoma, and I grew up in Bartlesville, uh, really close to the Kansas border. Um, we did not grow up on a farm, but my mother's side of the family had a cow-calf operation um, in central Oklahoma. And so I think my love of agriculture really started as a kid. Um, I love being outside. I love being uh, out on the range and just seeing those vast open spaces. And I think my love of the outdoors is what drove me to um, come to Oklahoma State for my undergrad. So I got a bachelor's in environmental science um, and I have two minor degrees. I think around my third year, I was like, you know, I really enjoy environmental science, but I think if I want to make an impact, it's through agriculture. So uh, during my undergrad, I pursued a double minor in soil science and agronomy. Um, and through some study abroad activities that I did at Oklahoma State, um, I found myself at the University of California, Davis, doing a master's in international agricultural development. Uh, while I was there, um, I had a graduate research position in the weed science program. Uh, with Dr. Bradley Hansen at UC Davis, uh, working in alfalfa um, and trying to identify uh, cold intolerance in Roundup-ready alfalfa. Uh, I really like doing international ag, but I loved doing weed science. <laughs> and mm -hmm. so um, after I finished my master's degree, I pursued a PhD in horticulture and agronomy with Professor Kasim Al-Khatib. Uh, and his lab focuses on weeds in rice. So I actually uh, came from the prairie studying small grains out to California in a very, very different small grain environment. <laughs> um, but his program is very applied. Uh, we worked with a lot of industry partners. Um, we had a very successful uh, herbicide screening program. We participated in a lot of field uh 
field days and grower meetings. And so the position that I have now at Oklahoma State is actually pretty similar to, um, I mean, ideally, I would love to mimic uh, Professor Al-Khatib's lab um, for my own lab. Uh, I am now the uh, extension weed scientist and precision weed management. That is my full title. Um, <laughs> it's a pretty long title. Yeah, and depending on the long titles. Yeah, and depending on who I talk to, I only tell them one part or the other. Oh, yeah. You know, it's like you don't need to know the whole <laughs> the whole bit. But my emphasis here at Oklahoma State is small grains. Um, I'm a member of the wheat improvement team, um, and you know, the, the joke is that rice and wheat are pretty much the same and one is flooded and one is not. And it's been pretty funny coming back to Oklahoma because that is not true. <laughs> no, I will say it is much easier to walk through a wheat field than a flooded rice field. So I'm uh, pleased to be back in the state, um, no longer working in rice, now working in wheat. That's my main focus. Um, and I'm also really excited. Uh, I have another colleague, Dr. Swati Shrestha. Mm -hmm. uh, my appointment is 85% extension, 15% research. And her appointment is 70% research, 30% teaching. And she is the, oh my gosh, and now I'm blanking on her title. Uh, she is weed research, um, ecophysiology, I think is actually her title, uh, her specialty. Um, Dr. Shrestha started, I think, two months before I did, and uh, we have actually met each other in the past at weed science meetings, and so I was very thankful to um, find another young colleague, another weed science colleague who was equally excited about collaborating with me, and we've already um, submitted a couple of grants. We're working on some pretty cool stuff that we have in the works Um yeah, so exciting to be back, exciting to have a fresh colleague to work with, and to see all of you all. Explore the future of agriculture with KWS, a global leader in innovation and sustainable farming practices. Uncover the exceptional qualities of our hybrid rye, cultivating a legacy for a greener tomorrow. Visit kws.com forward slash us for more information and for dealer locations. KWS, seeding the future since 1856. Well, you know, it, it's really awesome. And, and, and I came in at a time, and this is a long time ago now, but I came in at a time where there was a group of hires, right? And so, yeah. you know, a lot of times universities don't get to do that. They don't get to hire a group. Mm -hmm. And and I can't imagine coming in solo, like being the, the young one on and, and having already established, but the value of having that person to to bounce ideas off of, to walk through life as it is, walk through mm -hmm. the academic life as a, as a, a new uh, assistant prof, man, there's a ton of value in that. And even more, I'm really excited for your opportunity because you guys are, you know, it's one thing to be brought in with somebody else in a completely different area that you just mm -hmm. kind of get a, to work together. But, but you and Swati have uh, an opportunity to really build off of each other's programs yeah. Uh, in a way that uh, I don't think I haven't seen too often, right? There's been some programs come in that are cluster hires, uh, but I think there's some really great opportunity uh, with you and Swati working together. Yeah, I agree. And yeah, again, just so thankful to have her. And it's a really, you know, it's also a really interesting differences between 
my professors, um, who a lot of them are, well, not all of them, but a good chunk of the folks I worked with at UC Davis were sort of uh, very late career. Mm-hmm. And and the way that our late career colleagues behave compared to the mid-career colleagues compared to Dr. Shrestha and I are very different. And so, you know, there uh, cultural similarities and, you know, we're both women and that's really exciting. And we um, have a lot of the same colleagues because she actually mm-hmm. worked in Rice. Yeah. And so she and I have a lot of the same folks that were like, oh, we should work with that person. Um, we've engaged doc, uh, Dr. Muthu down at Texas A&M. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Dr. Shrestha worked with him for a year before she did her PhD. And um, he works in Rice. And so we would see him all the time. So it's not only are we new together, we have a very similar network. So we've already kind of I think we've had a much easier time lifting off um, compared to, like you say, a, like a solo hire would. Yeah. Yeah. So in, in some of the, the topics that you have listed here, um, you know, list the importance of, and, and we talked about another one we'll bring in, but you've, you've talked about the importance of biology and ecology knowledge when it comes to applied weed management. So kind of elaborate on, on some of what you're looking at when it comes to biology and ecology. Sure. Um, you know, my background is in weed science is a lot more biology, ecology focused. And I think now Dr. Shrestha is really the one who is answering those deeper um, population genetics questions, um, gene flow questions. But for me, as an applied weed scientist, I really see opportunities um, with, uh, I mean, with herbicide applications and with all of our weed management applications. If you don't have a good understanding of the weed that you're targeting, you're not going to be able to keep it under those action thresholds. Mm-hmm. So, so for example, um, during my PhD, I worked with weedy rice. Uh, weedy rice is exactly what it sounds like. It is a weedy species of its cultivated relatives, which we like to consume. Now, if they're both rice, how do you know when to spray? you can't really scout for it because it looks all the same. And so what I was really looking at is what environmental conditions were conducive to the growth of this weed. And can we use those conditions and monitor those conditions to time our application strategies? So I actually think um, the Mesonet has some really cool apps. Uh, I think they have an alfalfa weevil app, which is the one I really like to use. Um, for demonstration. And this is pretty similar to what I'm talking about. They're Mm -hmm. weeds, just like insects, just like viruses and pathogens, they develop at a very predictable rate, depending on the temperature, depending on the moisture, whatever that particular plant needs, right? So for weedy rice, it was temperature and moisture. They didn't really need oxygen. They didn't really need uh, nitrogen. They didn't really need uh, solar radiation. So when we can kind of, excuse me, narrow down on those factors, what are the what are the thresholds for those factors that then push these weeds to develop or push your alfalfa weevil to develop from the larval to the adult stage? Pretty similar stuff. Um, and so that's something in the longer term that I really want to work on is, you know, we have problematic weeds in the field. 
And a lot of growers tell me that they, they think they have resistance of one thing or another. But then I hear from neighbors who say, well, my neighbor sprayed their um, mare's tail when it was three feet tall. And now I have mare's tail seed blowing into my field. It's like, well, maybe it was resistant. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't poo poo on somebody when they tell me they think resistance. Right. But I do wonder if they're applying at the correct time. And, um, you know, we, I think there's sort of a general perception among the population that ag chemical companies will keep up with the rate of resistance. They'll put up new products. Like we don't need to worry about the longevity of the products that we have because the chemical companies will keep up. And that is not the case, especially if you work in a lower value crop. Um, so wheat is not, wheat doesn't have the market price that um, cotton, soybeans, peanuts do, right? So the rate of um, new product creation is going to be just a little bit slower for wheat crops than it is for these other crops. A little bit. A little slower. (laughs) So so another reason to like do these timing of application studies is so that we have product longevity, you know? Um, And so I'm excited for you to be here. This is, and I know that you've, just through the vine, I've, I know that you're kind of getting into another project. Long before you came, in fact, I was I was considered young at the time when we started this. <laughs> we got into some uh, nitrogen by herbicide, nitrogen timing by herbicide timing in wheat and Italian ryegrass. In fact, that was uh, Robert Calhoun's thesis. Oh, wow. Uh, so Robert, uh, you probably have seen Robert run around, but that was his uh, thesis with uh, Joe Armstrong. Who, okay. who's now off uh, uh, in Indiana again. I just talked to him the yeah. other day. But, but it, it's fascinating. We never got anywhere because it, the funny story was Joe was new too, went on ground that was, was supposed to be littered with Italian ryegrass. And so, you know, he plants, he doesn't sow his own seed. He, he just, just goes out there because people said, this is just loaded. Don't worry about it. Sure. <laughs> well, there was no ryegrass in any of the studies. Oh. And so we had a beautiful nitrogen timing by herbicide, but we didn't have rye. So the check still didn't have ryegrass. But it, it's fascinating to look, you know, the integration of stuff. We start talking about the integration of herbicide timing. Now the integration of fertilizer timing is we look, mm-hmm. you know, I'm trying to delay nitrogen in crops, which will actually slow the crop growth. I want a smaller wheat crop. Well, that goes in against competitive nature of let's canopy over so that we do that, but it may open it up so that herbicide, you know, has more direct contact if we have, and then what's the nature of the, if the soil is deficient in nitrogen and the weeds aren't aggressively growing and the wheat's not. And so uh, there's been a lot of stuff I'd love to dig in and we're digging into tillage, you know, we, we got 25 year old no-till fields that, I think honestly, due to nutrient stratification, due to uh, other issues and due to weed banks, probably need a inversion tillage once. Uh, and what does that mean? Which is uh, so and, risky. <laughs> yeah. huh? Which is so risky. You know, well, you don't know what you're going to find. Underneath whatever you find, if it's been no-till for 25 years, hopefully what you find isn't uh, chemically Nothing. resistant to the degree. True. Yeah. 
yes. uh, hoping to dig into some of the stuff. I, we've, I, I haven't got to talk to you yet. Talked to Todd <laughs> the other day, but we're we know some farmers who are looking at this, so we're wanting yeah. to do some soil sampling and maybe take some weed bank analysis before and yeah. after tillage. Uh, and then I personally have bought for my research program three sweet plows because windmill tumblegrass has been yeah. such a, a challenge. Talk a little bit about bringing in all of the aspects into your your research program because I'll just put you've got a few opportunities, right? You you can go a lot of ways. So what's yeah kind of the stuff that you and Swati are working with as far as programmatically that you're at least kind of seeing the trends you're going through? Well, something um, a grant that Swati and I already have submitted is first and foremost we don't we don't have a good. Um, we don't have a good snapshot of all the problematic weeds across the state of Oklahoma, you know, and where, and where are they, mm-hmm. you know, do we only, do we only have windmill tumble grass in no-till fields? Mm-hmm. Uh, do we only have rye grass in wheat fields or do we also have it in canola? Cause it's also a small grain, you know, mm-hmm. the, the first kind of big thing that she and I are doing is this big scouting effort and we're trying to use that as an impetus to reinvigorate our screening program. Because if you have herbicide resistance in your field, you need to know. And mm-hmm. quite frankly, she and I want to know because it's very exciting. We're glad somebody can be excited about resistant weeds. Yeah, right? from somebody a nerdy science. <laughs> yeah, we're the ones, maybe yeah. the only ones, but we're the ones. <laughs> um, and then... You know, from my PhD, our screening program fed a ton of graduate research pro- programs. Um, so that is sort of one big jump off platform that we are trying to create for ourselves uh, through 2024. Um, we're doing the scouting, reinvigorating the screening program and, and really and not just scouting, but we're going out and meeting people. Um, I'm pretty excited about the scouting because I do want to ask people like, well, why do you think that you have resistant ryegrass? You know, Mm -hmm. is it because it doesn't come up until after you've planted (laughs) because (laughs) it's a cold season annual, you know? Um, so there's all those different pretty foundational questions. Um, but then the next level, I think for me as an applied person is, Let's look at all the different tools. And I really, really want to focus on no-till. Um, just a little side story. Uh, there's that new movie that just came out, Common Grounds. Oh, yeah. Um, I have not seen it. But a girlfriend of mine messaged me the other day, and she was like, hey, get like tell me the real, real. You know, she's like, you as a PhD in ag, like, tell me. And she was like, but don't you think we should be doing no-till farming and cover cropping and uh, – you know, precision irrigation. And I was like, girl, we do that. You can come on down to Oklahoma. She's actually from uh, the West coast originally. um, And she lives here in Oklahoma. And I was like, you know, you want to see a really well done soil conservation focused field. I'll show you. It's not that far from our houses. Yeah. You know? And so I think on a national scale, we as South Central Great Plains folks who are doing a lot of soil conservation stuff, we mm-hmm. don't get the credit that we deserve. And I think a big um, project for me is looking at those no-till systems 
um, how can we maintain our soil conservation efforts mm -hmm. that really have been going on since the Dust Bowl, you know, yeah. it's not new stuff. Um, yeah. But just like you're talking about with windmill tumble grass, we have herbicide resistant weeds because these no-till fields are heavily dependent on um, herbicides. Mm -hmm. so, and the whole point of no-till is that we've deleted the mechanical option. Okay, so then what are our options left, right? And something that um, I really want to work on, and I actually have an undergrad, his, gosh, I'm probably going to get this wrong, but his undergraduate major is uh, natural resource ecology management with an emphasis in uh, range, but he's a wildland firefighter. Rangeland ecology. and Rangeland, Rangeland ecology. Thank you. Yeah. I was like, it's I know under... Yeah. One of the umbrellas, yeah. Yep. Um, but he actually has field work, field experience in mm -hmm. uh, wildland firefighting. And I know that Dr. Misha Manicheri, now Misha Bird, um, who mm -hmm. was in this position before me, had kind of started to look into fire. Um, and I have a lot of colleagues. Uh, I picked Dr. Jason Warren's brain the other day. Um, and fire seems to be like a great opportunity. Mm -hmm. um, we don't necessarily have to disturb the soil. Uh, if you have a no-till operation and you have all that stubble on the soil surface, mm -hmm. that's probably um, enough fuel. But then the question is, you know, we're talking about seed bank management. We want to cook the seed bank a little bit. Mm -hmm. But with weeds, the ones that are going to give you the most problems are the ones that are in the top really like two or three centimeters, mm -hmm. you know, weeds love the ideal conditions for germinating. And if we can somehow burn those in the top few centimeters, I think we could actually maintain our current no-till efforts. Um, but obviously there's a lot of questions, you know, a lot of questions, uh, you know, I'll, I'll add the fun ad, you know, o Oklahoma has a long history of supporting prescribed burning. In fact, I, I just dug up the number. Annually, we burn about two and a half to three million acres of rangeland wow. and pasture in a prescribed management. And that fluxes from year to year, depending on our, our fuel availability, like you mentioned. Uh, historically, we, we had, um, historically, fire has been used in winter wheat production, but it's been used along with tillage. So they would burn mm -hmm. the till. And so I think that some things you're you're interested in has a lot of questions that we don't know is burning within a no-till. So we know burning mm -hmm. within tillage, we know burning within range, mm -hmm. but burning within no-till is a little bit different scenario because of the potential for erosion. But again, right. you know, if we're in no-till, hopefully that seed bank itself isn't. So this is my question. If I'm in no-till and I have mm -hmm. a and I have a weed um, go to maturity and drop its seed, is that seed making it? you know, half an inch down or is it staying at near surface? It, I mean, it's definitely going to stay on the surface. Um, it kind of depends on what you do after that, you know? Mm -hmm. So the timing back to that timing of application, do you burn the stubble right after you harvest so that you cook all those seeds on the soil mm -hmm. surface? Or do you need to wait and use fire as kind of a, like a pre-plant management yep. strategy, you know, but then... Um, Dr. Warren and I were kind of talking about cover crops. Mm -hmm. So if you harvest some crop in the spring and then you cover crop for the summer, I mean, the hope is that your cover crop has deep roots 
And so if you use fire as a pre-plant for, let's say wheat, and you burn that cover crop, is that fire going to kind of follow down the root yeah, profile? Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, is it hot enough? Like, uh, so I think there's like that timing of application thing is also really, really important. And what the grower wants to do, um, you know, we have weed pads that only Can you desiccate it in enough time to get it to dry enough to, yeah. to burn? Yeah. You know, if we get a late summer rain, we're not going to be able to set it on fire because it'll be wet. <laughs> you know, we so this do we do we have to mow Jason, it down? Yeah. Oh yeah, you know, Jason was it Jason or Josh, Doctor Lofton or Doctor Warren? Years fire ahead of canola, looking at seed bank preppers, preppers, prep, prepping in front of canola. And Bill, I'm trying to remember the graduate's name. Um, uh, Bill Jones. Uh, did his mm-hmm. masters on tillage versus no-till versus fire to prepare for the canola seed bank since that is such a challenging uh, seed to plant and, and also its influence on weeds. Yeah, um, Josh Lofton did that. Yep. Uh, and I know he's been doing some canola stuff. Uh, and quite frankly, as the new small grains person, I have been meaning to get over there and be like, hey, Josh, tell, tell me the lowdown here. You know, <laughs> let's yeah. uh, team up on this because he's the agronomy guy. And mm-hmm. in my opinion, agronomists are the jack of all trades, you know. And so I think and I and I just really like Josh. He's a good mm-hmm. he's a great scientist, <laughs> you know. So um he was one of the people I was going to talk to and send my grad student over to talk to because he has thought about fire as a pre-plant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, bed prep. I'm writing this sure. down. I'm taking notes. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So, and, you know, one of the last things I want to bring up and some of the stuff that you mentioned was, you know, talking about uh, phenological development, the germination yeah. and emergence, a little bit with the thermal time. So I think that's yeah. really interesting if we look at our seed bank population and thermal time and uh, an emergence. So tell us a little bit about what you've done and kind of how you see that fitting in the Southern Plains. Yeah, um, this really, you know, thermal time is kind of the fancy science terminology for growing degree days. I think a lot of people are really familiar with growing degree days for crops. Um, and kind of using that alfalfa weevil example from the mesonet, that is also a growing degree day calendar. Uh, and it's very difficult to use those growing degree day models for weeds because they are so, um, they're so different, right? And, and this kind of gets into what Dr. Shreshtha has more experience in with population dynamics. You know, the ryegrass that you have in your wheat field that you've had in your wheat field for years might be really different than the um, ryegrass that they have, like in an orchard, for example. Um, And so this growing degree day stuff, uh, I think, is very helpful for the timing of application, but it's more helpful for scouting. So if my ryegrass looks really, really similar to, or the bromus species, they look so similar to wheat when they come up. I I took my students out to scout for bromus the other day in our field and they were like, how do we find it? It's like, we're just going to stand here until we see one. (laughs) You'll you'll see it. Don't worry. 
you'll see it. There's not very many of them, but you'll see it. They have little red uh, nodes at the base of their growing points, you know. But can we use these models and apply them to uh, the weeds that we find from our scouting activities Mm -hmm. and say, okay, um, Bromus from Beaver County develops in 5,000 growing degree days, but Bromus from uh, Bixby where we get a little bit more rain, where it might be a, a mm-hmm. whisper, cooler, maybe. Um, uh, Bromus from Bixby um, matures in 3,000 growing degree days. So not wildly different from yeah. the crop growing degree days, but weeds don't want to behave in predictable manners. And there's yeah. so many different... Um, uh, not necessarily, well, kind of like subspecies that are heavily influenced by the environment. Um, so can we create some thermal time models or some growing degree day models to help us time our scouting events, first of all? Mm-hmm. And some people don't even have time to scout before they need to spray, um, especially if you depend on a co-op for spraying. So you could even use these models to say like, okay, well, based on how warm it's been and based on this mesonet calendar, we're going to hit 5,000 growing degree day units in uh, next week. And I want to get ahead of, you know, I don't want to wait until my bromus is three feet tall. So I'm going to go ahead and call the co-op and ask them to come spray in two weeks. You know, some, some something to give growers a little bit more information. Um, but those are emergence models. And yep. in terms of phenology, they have to germinate first. So it's mm. not just an emergence model, it's a germination model that is then coupled with an emergence model. And for my PhD um, dissertation research, I worked with five different accessions. So they were all genetically different from each other. And I tested temperatures from 10 degrees Celsius to 40 degrees Celsius in five mm. degree units. That experiment to get three good replications took me uh, three years, right? So I, I think people look at these growing degree day models and they're like, these are these are cool, these are great. Or they're like, this has very low uh, accuracy. Why do people mm-hmm. put these together? Well, it could easily take a decade to make one of these models. <laughs> so I'm gonna go sideways just because I've always wanted at least so so dumb it down to a soil scientist here as we look at it because i look at look at the weed species that we deal with and and i can name 80 that do this but we have multiple flushes right so yep it's not like we're even doing anything to the soil to initiate a flush but it's with a rain or this how is it with the weed that with the proper conditions, it all doesn't just flush at once and i'm thinking i don't know brome does it seems like vetch does it it's like all these different flushes, which is frustrating to say the least on timing yes. your herbicide. <laughs> so my immediate assumption is that has to do with the burial depth. Um, mm-hmm. I guess if you're working in no-till, uh, there is not really a burial depth factor, but there could be a cover, like a stubble cover factor. And uh, the soil has incredible uh, temperature buffering capacity, right? And so... Maybe those, so for um, our winter annuals, right, it's going to get cooler on the soil surface uh, before it gets cooler at a one-inch depth. 
Um, and so the temperature gradient through the soil could cause multiple flushes. Um, but similarly with rainfall, you know, mm -hmm. if we only get a half inch rain, it's only going to provide moisture to those seeds sitting on the soil surface, or if we get a two inch rain. Mm -hmm. um, but without uh, really understanding, you know, without talking about a specific weed species in a specific system, it's hard to say, but my those are kind of my immediate assumptions. Like it has to do with where they sit in the soil profile. Well, <laughs> I figured, I mean, it, it's almost like you said, the agronomist's best friend is an answer, which is it depends. Right? It depends. Yeah. It depends. <laughs> it's time for our famous three. We're out of time. I think we can go on like this sure. for a while, but I want to yeah. go through, through the, the three questions. Uh, okay. First, as you, as you look at work resources, what, what's a go-to work resource that you have when it comes to work questions? I, I have to tell you, Brian, I heavily depend on my colleagues like you for questions. <laughs> I, I just started in October. And so I, you know, I'm still trying to figure out regionally who my, um, who my go-to people are. I know that Josh Bouchong is a great um, wheat resource, but he is so stinking busy. Um, that I try to be very explicit and direct with my questions to him to not waste his time. But I know where your office is, you know what I'm saying? So I, well, I've been looking internally. In yeah. I only started back in May, but that was in 2008. And I still yeah. go to those who have been around or, or not even been around just, just folks like you, you're going to find me in your office a lot too, Liberty. So don't, don't yeah. worry about That's that. Fair. It's about the resources we have nearest. Uh, so the next question is, what's, what's your uh, favorite leisure activity? What do you do in your free time? Because I know you have a ton. Oh, yeah. So much free time. <laughs> um, you know, I am, I grew up playing sports. Uh, mm -hmm. And when I was at Oklahoma State, I, um, I feel like this is very telling and I can't decide if I should tell people this, but I started <laughs> playing Ultimate Frisbee at Oklahoma yep. State. Um, <laughs> and that actually carried through adulthood. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, every, every place that I've moved to, I've found community in the ultimate Frisbee folks. And I actually play on a women's, um, club ultimate Frisbee team here in Tulsa. That's awesome. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. I love it. They're there for a while. I did beer league softball for a very long, I mean, summer league softball for a very long time, I guess I yeah. should say. I like um, the, I like the community aspect of sports yeah. of organized sports. Yeah. So do you have any place people can go to to find more about what you're doing at Oklahoma State? Yes, but I need to like get after it and update it. Um, so right now, LinkedIn is the best place to um, find me, find what I'm getting into. Uh, and I've reposted a couple of things from my colleagues that I think are really, really important. Mm -hmm. um, but I need to start a Facebook page. Uh, at the Rural Renewal Symposium late last mm -hmm. fall, we found out that 77% of our rural population get their news and information from Facebook. Yes. Um, so for my rural stakeholders, I need to start a Facebook. For my professional academic colleagues, I need to start a Twitter. Uh, <laughs> and then my expert page, which I have not filled out, but that is on the to-do list. So Find me on LinkedIn right now, but then I will be aggressively posting all of these other things on, on my LinkedIn through, through that platform. 
Fantastic. Well, Dr. Galvin, thank you so much for spending the time with us today on the podcast. And of course, subscribers or those listening folks, subscribe to the channel. That's the one way to keep us going on this. And if you like it uh, and you subscribe, you'll get our notifications. Share this video to others if you've learned something today. Also, feel free to leave us a comment and suggest any new guests you might, you might have. Thank you so much. Thanks, Liberty. Looking to elevate your brand and captivate audiences through the power of podcasting? Look no further. Introducing the custom podcast brought to you by Wise Minutes, where we take care of the behind the scenes so that you can focus on what truly matters. Podcasting has become an invaluable tool for brand awareness, but let's face it, putting it into practice can be a daunting task. It's incredibly time-consuming and requires technical know-how. But don't worry, we've got you covered. With our experienced team at The Help, we'll handle the operational aspects so you can channel your energy into what your company does best. Are you ready to unleash the podcasting potential of your company? Schedule a call with one of our specialists today at the link in the bottom of this episode. You'll also receive a free podcast strategy consult tailored to the unique needs and goals of your business.